Trinity has grown a lot in the last few years. You used to be able to kind of assume that you knew everybody in the room, that you'd be able to connect with everybody, but obviously we've got two services now, a lot more people, and so it's a little odd, but I have to say things like, if you spend time with me outside of Sunday morning, you might know a few things about me that aren't so flattering. For example, my youth ministry team knows that I am way overly competitive. It is just, you know, too easy to get caught up in these youth group games sometimes. Uh, I'm, I'm making light of it, but very seriously, it is a character flaw of mine that I am overly competitive, and it's been something I've been dealing with for a long time. Um, and I remember kind of the peak of where I just had the most inappropriate reactions to losing was in middle school. I could not handle losing. Uh, and I would get like emotional and worked up, angry and, and shame, full of shame and all these powerful emotions. Uh, but I had this youth leader, uh, his name was Tim, go figure. And uh, Tim was really godly, really wise, and he was really good at graciously confronting others. And so it makes sense that one of the first times I can really remember hearing and understanding the gospel was when Tim talked to me about this issue in my life. I remember we were at some kind of youth group event. We were playing uh, knockout, that classic basketball game where there's a line and you're shooting the balls, trying to knock out the person in front of you. And I kept getting really close to the end and then still losing. And I was getting so mad. And I was arrogantly thinking, I'm the best one here. I should be winning all these games. And I was just frustrated and getting full of shame. And Tim could see the, the emotion just rising in me. And so he took me aside and he talked to me about it. And he asked me a question, very simple, but very piercing. And it wasn't sarcastic. He wasn't trying to just diffuse the emotion and blow me off. He was asking a serious question to my heart. Kyle, why do you need to win? And because I knew he was actually asking me, what's going on in there? It hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember hot tears just streaming down my face because Tim needed to address this in my life. There was something wrong in my heart. And all of a sudden, all these gospel presentations that Tim had, ever, had spoken to me started to come alive. Because of Jesus, I didn't need to win. I didn't need to prove anything to anybody at youth group. They loved me for me, not for what I could do. I didn't need to prove anything to myself. My identity was secure in Christ. I didn't need to prove anything to God. One, I don't think he cares about my basketball at all, but he doesn't love me because of my performance. Because of Jesus, it was okay to lose. Because of Jesus, it was okay to be weak. Ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were filled with shame and fear, we've been running from our weakness. In that shame and fear, we try to cover it over. We try to, you know, make this facade of strength appear like we are not weak, but deep down we're terrified because we know that we are weak. And weakness looks different to different kinds of people. For me, weakness was losing. For some, to be weak means you're not taken seriously. For some, to be weak is to be unlovable. For some, to be weak is to be insignificant, ineffective. For some... It's to be not noticed. You know what weakness is for you. We're all weak. But the question is, what does God want us to do with our weakness? This morning, we're finishing up our sermon series in Isaiah 40. And most of this sermon series, we've been focusing in on how great, how awesome, how wonderful, how incredible our God is, the incomparable God of the scriptures. And here at the end of this chapter, we're seeing that he's also gentle. How does God treat weak people? 
How does he treat people who are lowly, who are contrite? When they turn to him, he becomes their strength. So we're going to be in Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31, and we're going to see three things in our text. First, your weakness is not a problem for God. In fact, if you embrace your weakness, it is the occasion for a deeper experience of God's love. Secondly, your strength is not valuable to God. And in fact, it may hinder you from knowing God. And finally, weakness in and of itself is not a virtue. Weakness is meant to draw us into dependence on the all-powerful, gracious God who is our strength. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. Isaiah 40, we'll begin in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As we come to the end of Isaiah 40, we reach this really beautiful passage. And the first thing we notice is that our weakness is not a problem for God. It's an occasion for a deeper experience of his love. I mentioned a month ago in my first sermon in this series on Isaiah 40 that as a kid, I actually had a plaque with my name on it in Isaiah 40, 30, and 31 written out. And as often happens with our favorite Bible verses, sometimes when we take them out of context, we cheapen them. And I think I did that with this text. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. It's like Philippians 4.13, Paul saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so we, you know, teenagers, we apply that to like our tests at school. Like I can pass the test because Jesus is with me. Or adults, we're like, I can do that thing at work. I can accomplish the goal. I can meet my measurements because of Christ who strengthens me. But Paul's not talking about that. Paul's saying something much bigger. When he faces poverty and hardship or success and wealth, He can be faithful to God no matter what because Christ strengthens him. That's what he's talking about. We do it with Jeremiah 29, 11. I have a future and a hope for you, God declares over his people. And we say, great, I'm gonna have good things happen in my life. Maybe, Uh, but the context there was that God's people actually were going into exile. They were gonna have a lot of hard things come in their life. And the promise was much bigger than good things are coming. The promise was no matter what today looks like, you can trust God. He is faithful to his promises. He will see you through this. In the same way, when we come to Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, we're tempted to say, oh, when I'm exhausted, when I need spiritual and emotional encouragement, God's there for me. And that's true. But this is way bigger than that. This promise is way bigger than that. And so we need to notice, who exactly is Isaiah writing this to again? It's people in exile. It's desperately weak people. Israelites are not just slightly discouraged. They've been forcibly taken from their homes. The temple destroyed, their families destroyed, their world turned upside down. And now this exile in this distant land under another kingdom's rule has persisted for a long time. God's people are really weak, despairing. And they're asking tough questions. Is God, am I hidden from God? Can God not see me? Has God disregarded me? Has God forgotten me? 
That's who Isaiah is writing to. And so he speaks to these two painful questions. One about God's power. Is God limited in some way that he can't see me, that he can't help me in my pain? And then the second question about God's compassion. Does he care? Is he with me? Has he forgotten me or forsaken me? Either because he's not a compassionate God or because I'm such a screw up that he left me. And so Isaiah speaks to each of these painful questions. And the first one about whether we are hidden from God, he reminds the Israelites that God is eternal, that God has created the entire universe, that God is all powerful, that God knows everything. He's limited in no way, in short, that God is sovereign. The exact thing the Israelites are tempted to doubt is what God wants to remind them of, that he is sovereign. He's in control. It's an unfortunate reality that in much of modern evangelicalism, we've chosen to disregard, minimize, or even deny the doctrine of God's sovereignty because we think we're being really pastoral. I don't have time to get into the long discussion about that doctrine, but we think we're being really pastoral when we tell somebody in in tragedy, somebody in calamity, God didn't want this to happen to you. God didn't want this for your life. But really what we're doing is taking the rug and pulling it out from under their feet. The only real foundation we have in calamity and in disaster is if God is good and in control. What we're often saying to people is, oh yeah, God's not in control. He didn't want this. He didn't see it coming. It's not pastorally helpful. It's pastorally cruel. Isaiah knows that. That's why he reminds people who have suffered greatly that God is in control. He doesn't answer the why questions. We always ask the why question. He doesn't get there. And we'll we'll talk about that a bit in the third movement this morning of my sermon. But what he really presses in to suffering people is God is powerful. He's in control. He can save you. He can restore you. Your weakness is not a problem for God. He is strong. And so to weak people, he reminds them that God is strong. But then there's the second piece. Maybe God is strong, but maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe he has disregarded me. He's forgotten me. He's forsaken me. And it would make sense if that's what Israel thought. Maybe they thought back to their time in the land when they were heinously wicked, when they turned from God to all kinds of false religions, all kinds of idolatry, even child sacrifice where they were so unfaithful to God and they thought to themselves, of course God's disregarded us. Maybe this morning you would agree that God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is in control, but maybe you feel like he's abandoned you. Maybe you feel like he's disregarded you because of your sin. Maybe it has nothing to do with your sin. Maybe you're simply doubting whether God is good and compassionate. You're wondering if he just doesn't care. And if you're in either of those groups, I urge you to look at Isaiah 57, 15. We get an inkling of it. In Isaiah 40, God says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. There's this inkling of the gospel that God comes to those who are weak. We see it more fully in this verse, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite 
and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. This is why I tell you, not only is your your weakness no problem for God this morning, because he's powerful, he's sovereign, but it might be the occasion for a deeper experience of God's love. Where can the holy, eternal, almighty God of the universe be found? With the brokenhearted. With the penitent. With the weak. That's where he can be found. And so, God's invitation to you this morning, if you feel weak, is to realize that he's nearer to you than you knew. It's to realize, as we say in the assurance of pardon every Sunday, that to those who are truly turned to him, there is abounding mercy and grace. There's forgiveness. The pathway to experiencing God's forgiveness and grace is penitence, is repentance. And to those who feel weak, the pathway to knowing God's love, his tender heart to you, is mourning, is lament. As Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you feel weak this morning, your weakness is no problem for God. Go to him. Go to him in repentance. Go to him in sorrow, in lament, in mourning. He will comfort you. Look back at the text with me. Verse 30. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Your weakness is no problem for God, and your weakness is an occasion to actually experience the love of God more deeply. But notice here, your strength also is not valuable to God. And in fact, your strength might hinder you from knowing God. Why does Isaiah drop this line in about youths and young men in the middle of his words of comfort to a deeply despairing, weak people. Because weak people love to think about what it would feel like to be strong. We all want to be strong. We hate weakness. We do everything within our power to get discomfort away from us, to get away from suffering, to get away from hardship, to put ourselves in a position of strength and security and and to feel significant and in control. That's what we want. We hate weakness. And so Isaiah reminds the people of God, you can't escape it. No one can escape weakness. I don't care how talented you are, how smart you are, what kind of deck of cards you've been handed. I don't care if you're the hardest working person in this church, you will not escape your weakness. It finds all of us. And so as long as we are on this hamster wheel of trying to protect ourselves by building up strength, We're going to be exhausted and our weakness is going to find us out anyway. We can't just keep going in our own strength. Now, here's the thing. Most of us would agree with that. Most of us would say in some measure, it's okay to be weak. We would agree with that message. And there's this this message throughout our culture, Western culture broadly, it is okay to be weak. It is okay to be honest about your deficiencies your shortcomings, your failures, and actually you will find strength when you look inward, when you love yourself, when you accept yourself despite your failings. And I'm not saying that message is entirely false. It's grabbed something from Christian theology, but it comes up way short of the truth. You see, for all of human history before Christ, every culture 
viewed strength as noble, strength as praiseworthy, and weakness as awful, something to be, to be loathed. At best, the, there was a noble vision of the strength protecting the weak, but the weak were not viewed as equals with the strong. And then Christ came and showed the world this message that every soul is invaluable to God, whether weak or strong. And broadly speaking, Western culture has clung to that message. The weak are just as valuable as the strong, but they've missed the gospel with it. The gospel says, you are weak. Find your strength outside of yourself in God. And so you see, we've just moved the goalposts. We say it's okay to be weak, but what we really mean is there's a new measurement for strength. Instead of these external markers of expertise and power and control, now it's these internal markers, the psychological self. Can you accept yourself? Can you love yourself? Can you find self-esteem? Then you'll be strong. And did you notice something? Isaiah doesn't say to the Israelites, I know you feel really weak. Just look inside and you'll find strength. We know it's cheap. We know it doesn't work. We know that at, at some level, I need strength from outside of myself. I am weak, whether the marker is something external or or something internal, I can't escape my weakness. There's this paradigm throughout all of the scriptures that God's people need to come to the end of themselves before they can really find God's strength. They need to renounce their own strength to receive his. You see it everywhere. You see it in Abraham and Sarah, who Paul in the book of Romans says, were as good as dead when God promised to give them Isaac, and it was then that they trusted God. We see it in Jacob, whose entire life was striving for God's blessing and didn't receive it until God wounded him. You see it in Joseph, who was thrown into the pit and into prison, and when the bottom of his life fell out, he didn't trust in himself, he trusted in God. You see it beautifully in Moses, Moses, who wanted to do something significant for God. And so he thought he was going to start an insurrection, murdered an Egyptian, and it didn't go the way he thought. And he fled into the wilderness, into obscurity for 40 years, so that when he was 80 years old and probably thought, my time of use to God is over, that's when God showed up in the burning bush. You see it in Peter, who denied Christ three times the night he was betrayed and had to be restored before he could be a useful shepherd of the flock. You see it in Paul, who had to renounce every piece of significance in his life, his pedigree, his education, his status, to be an apostle of the Lord. Until you come to the end of yourself, realize like Abraham and Sarah that you are dead and need resurrection life, you won't know God's power. Until, like Jacob, you come to the end of your striving and simply ask for God's blessing, you won't know his strength. Until you are in your calamity, your disaster, and stop looking at yourself for salvation, but look up to God for salvation, you won't know his strength. Until, like Moses, you come to the place where you think you are useless to God, you won't be useful to him. Until, like Peter, You stop trying to earn God's good graces, but receive grace freely, you won't know his strength. Until you, like Paul, renounce everything of value, of significance, of strength in yourself, you won't know God's strength. Your strength is not valuable to God. He doesn't need it. He is the infinite almighty God of the universe. 
He doesn't need your strength. Your strength is hindering you from experiencing a dependence on the Lord to experiencing real power, the Holy Spirit working in you when you trust in him instead of in yourself. What is that strength that you are leaning upon? Is it your education? Is it your resume, your portfolio? Is it something internal? The work you've done? It'll all come up short. Instead, seek God. Seek his strength. Look back at the text with me one more time. Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Your weakness is no problem for God. In fact, it's an occasion for a deeper experience of his love. Your strength is not valuable to God. In fact, it's a hindrance from you knowing God's power at work in you. And finally, Weakness in and of itself is not a virtue. It is meant to draw you into dependence on God. Where does enduring strength come from? We've said it a bunch already. It comes outside of ourselves in the God who is truly strong. Isaiah tells Israel, wait on the Lord. And that's a very simple phrase. It doesn't mean something complex. It simply means trust him. Depend on him for everything that you need. Put your hope in him for the restoration, the redemption that he has promised despite all your weakness. And biblical hope is not a wishful thinking. It is a confident assurance that what God has said will come to pass, that he is faithful to his word. Now, here's the amazing thing. Isaiah felt like you could soar on eagle's wings if you trusted in God and he didn't even know the fullness of the redemption that God had for us. Isaiah had a confident assurance that God would restore his people to the land, that he would rebuild his temple, that he would be faithful to all his promises to David. He even had the vision of the suffering servant and knew that God would make his people right with him. But he didn't know the full extent of what God was going to do, that it was the son of God himself who would die for sins. You see, what we have in the cross of Christ is something truly remarkable. God doesn't simply care about our weakness. God doesn't simply solve our weakness for us. God doesn't simply come near. He makes our weakness his. The apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How does God overcome our weakness? Not simply through his infinite might, but through his own weakness, Christ crucified. On the cross, all our moral weakness was put on Jesus so that when he died, our sins were taken away. On the cross, Jesus hung as a curse so that the curse we bear would be borne away by him. In Jesus, the weakness of God is revealed and God's weakness crushes 
our weakness and makes us strong. Why does God allow weakness? Why does he allow suffering? Why does he allow evil and hardship in the world? We don't fully know. We don't fully know how his redemptive plan is going to make all things new and right again and beautiful again, but we know we can trust him. We know we can trust him because he's the God who's not simply sovereign and aloof. He is the God who is near to us and makes our weakness his own. And so we can say with ultimate confidence that we are not hidden from God, not only because God is sovereign and powerful, but because on the cross, the father turned his face away from the son so that his gaze could always rest on us. And we can say with ultimate confidence that we are not disregarded, we are not forsaken by God, not only because God is full of mercy and compassion and is near to the lowly and contrite, but because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was forgotten so that you and I would be cherished and remembered forever. And we can say with ultimate confidence that when we wait on the Lord, our strength will be renewed because on the cross, Jesus became ultimately weak. He was destroyed. He was killed so that you and I could know his resurrection life, know his resurrection power. When my youth leader, Tim, asked me why I needed to win, it struck me that I think, I thought I had to be strong. I thought I had to be strong to be accepted, to be loved, to be useful to God. And it's exactly the opposite. I needed to be dependent. I don't know what weakness you're carrying with you this morning. A weakness born out of suffering, a weakness born out of moral failing, a weakness of hope, a weakness of peace. I don't know what your weakness is today, but I know that the response to wait on the Lord looks like boasting in the cross of Christ, the weakness of God that makes us strong. So as we come to the table this morning, receive from the gentle and lowly Savior who made himself weak so that you might be made strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do not ask us to be strong. You ask us to wait on you. And I pray that you would give us a renewal of faith today. You would help us to wait on you, to trust in you to believe that you are powerful and you are compassionate and good, that you would help us especially to boast in the cross of Christ where we see your infinite love displayed for us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.